Welcome to the Staying Ages podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Asosa E, also known as Raw Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and a behavioral coach. And today on the show, we are going to be talking about how a plant-based diet can actually help you live longer. To get this longevity party started, I'm going to give you guys a few simple tips about how a plant-based diet can increase your lifespan and also some key nutrients you need to stay optimal. And later, we're going to chat with our expert for today, the incomparable Dr. Neil Bernard, who is the founder of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and one of my personal plant-based heroes. I am so grateful to have each and every one of you tuning into the show. And if today's show inspires you, I'm inviting you to go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to me to get feedback, so any reviews are much appreciated. For those of you who know me and you follow me since my blogger days, shout out to all the original followers of rawgirltoxicworld.com. You know I've been a vegan now for over 20 years. I think it's actually going to be, what, 24 years in this year, in 2020. Wow. It's been a long haul. I started at a much different place than I am now in terms of the knowledge that I have about nutrition and health in general. And although maybe there was a time years ago where I might have believed that a vegan diet was a good option for everyone, the more that I learned about nutrition and the more I worked with clients, the more I believe in bio-individuality. It's one thing to find a diet and lifestyle that works well for your body specifically, and a whole other thing to treat thousands of patients and realize that one person's food is totally another person's poison. Happen all the time in my office. So when it comes to longevity and plant-based diets, I've actually had the opportunity to interview a number of amazing women and men over 70 who look and feel amazing, and they also choose to adopt a plant-based diet. Some of them are raw foodists, some of them are vegetarians, some of them are vegan. Although it may not be for everyone to go completely plant-based, I do believe that eating more plants and more whole food, if not solely whole food, is a major key to living long and staying ageless. Here's two things about a plant-based diet that may be why some people find success with longevity. So when it comes to staying ageless, part of what we're aiming to do is just slow down the inevitable breakdown of the body. That's pretty much all we can do, guys. Just slow it down. It's going to happen. But the good news is that getting your veggies in can assist with this process. So the first point I want to discuss is that when you start to consume a whole food, plant-based diet, it can be beneficial for increasing longevity because of phytochemicals and phytonutrients. Phyto literally means plant. So phytochemical literally is just a term to describe all of the chemicals related to the plant species. There are well over 7,000 phytochemicals. There may be many more than that. All ancient healing traditions recognize them and utilize the power of them. And although they're not the same as vitamins and minerals necessarily, which are required to keep our body functioning and processing energy, phytochemicals are integral to protecting the body from harmful substances, which can cause cell damage or cause chronic conditions. Phytochemicals can also have an immediate impact on our gene expression and can switch off genes that cause disease. 
Some that you may have heard of, even if you can't pronounce them, are chlorophyll, carotenoids, curcuminoids, flavonoids, polyphenols, indole-3-carbonyl, and catechins. Another interesting thing to consider when you're looking at a plant-based diet or any diet and how to activate longevity is the mTOR pathway. I know it sounds like something out of a movie, maybe Star Wars or something. The mTOR pathway in the body is basically the master controller of protein synthesis and the regulator of growth. When it's high, it's going to stimulate growth in our body. The downside is that it can also stimulate growth of things like cancers or tumors. When it's low, it stimulates a magical, wonderful process called autophagy, which I like to call a gangsta cell cleanup or taking out the trash. But basically, it's a process of recycling damaged proteins into new amino acids to build new tissue. So it's a repair and maintenance of the body. So when it's low, we're going to go into repair and maintenance mode. When it's high, we're going into growth mode. So some of the things that fuel mTOR, according to one of the leading mTOR researchers, David Sabatini, are glucose, amino acids, or proteins, and growth factors. In fact, chronic expression of mTOR is actually linked to obesity, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune conditions, and even epilepsy. So if you consume a plant-based diet with complex carbs, it's mostly from whole food sources. So we're talking about like no refined sugar, really low on the refined flours, generally you'd be keeping your mTOR pretty low because you're, you're also not getting a ton of protein there. Um, you're going to get, a, you should get enough, but not a ton. You, you could also achieve this on a diet that includes animal products in moderation. Again, it'd have to be a very low sugar, low refined carbohydrates, high amount of vegetables, and also incorporate some intermittent fasting because during the periods of fasting, you would actually be driving that mTOR low. The other thing not to do, which goes contrary to what we're often taught, you know, old school diet tips like eating and consuming foods all day, every day for every two to three hours. Don't do that. Just don't do it. No matter your diet, giving the body a break, some fasting periods provides a good kind of stress that will also promote your longevity. So if you want to get your mTOR down life, get on that hashtag low sugar lifestyle (laughs) and also consider maybe cycling your protein intake. Maybe if you're a meat eater, you're not eating tons of meat all day, every day. And um, if you're plant-based, you're getting some plant-based sources and maybe also incorporate things like fasting. All right, y'all, we're going to take a short break. And right after the break, we're going to speak to our amazing guest. Today's guest is Neil Bernard, MD. He is an adjunct associate professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine in D.C., and he's also the president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Dr. Bernard has led numerous research studies investigating the effects of diet on diabetes, body weight, and chronic pain, including a groundbreaking study of dietary interventions in type 2 diabetes funded by the National Institutes of Health that paved the way for viewing type 2 diabetes as a potentially reversible condition for many patients. 
He has also authored more than 90 scientific publications and 20 books for medical and lay readers, and he's the editor-in-chief of the Nutrition Guide for Clinicians, a textbook made available to all U.S. medical students. As president of the Physicians Committee, Dr. Bernard leads programs advocating for preventative medicine, good nutrition, and higher ethical standards in research. His research contributed to the acceptance of plant-based diets in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. In 2015, he was named a Fellow of the American College of Cardiology, and in 2016, he founded the Bernard Medical Center in Washington, D.C. as a model for making nutrition a routine part of all medical care. Dr. Bernard, so, so happy to talk to you today. The first question I have for you is, how did you transition from wanting to go the traditional medical route to being an MD who basically uses and champions the power of nutrition? The seeds of that transition were really sown before I went to medical school. I have to say, the the year before I, I went to medical school, I was working in a hospital in Minneapolis. And down in the basement of the hospital was the hospital morgue. And if somebody died in the hospital, their body ended up in my cooler. And not the most enviable job, but this is my job. And so the main job was to help the pathologist in the hospital to do autopsies. So one day we had a person who died in the hospital of a massive heart attack, probably from eating hospital food, but that's, that's another, <laughs> another issue. Anyway, so the pathologist uh, cut a big section of ribs off the chest because he wanted to look at the heart. And he knew I was going to go to medical school, so he made sure I saw everything. So he pulled the ribs off the chest, and he said, look at the heart. And he sliced open a coronary artery, and he made me stick my finger inside, you know, gloved hands. And I could feel this atherosclerosis. It's, it's mm. like, it's, it's hard. It's, it's like a clay pipe instead of a normal flexible artery. So anyway, um, this was an eye-opener for me. And he, he had me look at the carotid arteries going to the brain. They were all filled with atherosclerotic plaque. He said, this is your bacon and eggs. This is what causes all this problem. So I said, okay. End of the exam. He finishes up. He walks out of the room and leaves it for me to clean up. So I put the ribs back in the chest and I sewed the skin up and cleaned everything. And I went up to the cafeteria. And on that particular day, they were serving ribs for lunch. No. And I want to tell you, (laughs) I looked at that and I said, that looks like a dead body. And it smelled like a dead body. And and I realized it is a dead body. And I didn't become a vegetarian on the spot, but I could not eat that. And I got this. The more of these autopsies I did, the more I started to realize that there's something about the meat. the meat that people eat and the death. And the reason I should qualify this, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. Mm. My extended family is all in the cattle business and my dad grew up in that business. So I know all about that and I'm sympathetic to those people. However, I started to just see a whole other side of it. And when I got out of medical school, the other thing that happened, when I got out of residency, I started to realize in American medicine, we're pretty good with diagnosis Pretty good with treatment sometimes, depending on what it is. But we don't do anything about prevention. Mm. We, we, we don't do anything about a heart attack until it comes in the emergency room door. We don't do anything about cancer until it shows up on a mammogram. And I thought, well, that's got to change. We've got to do something about that. So I set up this group called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Mm. The idea was let's be responsible. Let's, let's talk about what works. That's amazing. So literally the idea of what happens to you at the end of your life kind of sparked you to live your life differently and also help other people. That was the beginning of it. But as you know, once that door opens, 
you can't go back again. Mm. Other doors open and you start to really see the big picture. Right. And and so for me, I started to, 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 to think about not just how nutrition affects cardiovascular diseases and common forms of cancer like colorectal or prostate or or even breast cancer. Mm -hmm. They have links with food that we should put those to work for to our advantage. But I also started to become sensitive to the environmental issues and the animal issues and all of these big issues that I had had blinders on right? uh, uh, up until that point. That's awesome. So you wrote this really awesome article in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and it was about the American diet over a hundred years. Is there anything as a health conscious person now, based on your experience and research, is there anything that's becoming a trend in our food supply right now that you feel like should be a concern for us for the next hundred years? Like lots of, <laughs> yes, like lots of them. Don't, you know, don't get me started. I'm tempted to say. Give um, me like the top one. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the one that's on my mind right now. Okay. Here we are in the district of Columbia and I am very concerned that when I look at colorectal cancer, mm-hmm. overall, that battle is getting better. The colorectal cancer is diminishing bit by bit by bit by bit, except look at young people. And, and by mm-hmm. young, I'm going to say anybody up to age 49, mm. can't, colorectal cancer in that group is rising. Why is it rising? The World Health Organization said processed meat. That's a technical term for bacon, mm. sausage, ham, hot dogs. Mm. All these foods are clearly they clearly cause colorectal cancer. Mm-hmm. And if you're a young person, bacon is a fad. You Bacon on everything. Mm-hmm. Arby's, we have the meats. You can get bacon-flavored soap. It's, <laughs> and, and, of course, if you're young, you're immortal. Right. You'll live forever. YOLO. And what we're doing, unfortunately, with this willful nutritional ignorance, may I use those words, is to sow the seeds of real trouble mm. when those people grow older. But let me say, you don't have to be older to have these problems. Katie Couric, famous becoming, for becoming a, a colorectal, can, colorectal cancer advocate mm-hmm. because her husband died of this disease. And when he died, he was 42. And he didn't. this cancer did not start when he was 42 or 41 or 40 or 39. It started before that. And so kids today that you see walking down the street, they don't have the slightest worry in their head about all of these things that are lying in wait right around the corner. And it's not just them. It's their kids and their neighbors and their friends and their loved ones. And so I feel like as a doctor, we we have got to let people know, mm. encourage them to take a stance and also encourage our own profession. I mean, the medical profession, the nutrition professions mm-hmm. to really stand up and be, be counted. Hmm. Wow. One of the biggest things that I struggle with as a practitioner, because I see a a lot of clients, like my first clients, it was like 300 clients a month. It was a lot of people. And I just started to notice that so many people were so different. And so it was really hard for me to set hard, fast rules for how to tell someone to do their diet. But I've been vegan myself for 20 years and it works for me. I think it's amazing. I've seen the power of vegan diets like transform people's health. Do you actually believe that the vegan diet is best for every single person? And if so, why? Absolutely. Now, I don't view a vegan diet as an extreme end of one's dietary exploration. To me, it's the beginning. Um, You get the animal products off your plate. That's good good advice for everybody. Once you've done that, some people might want maybe a more Asian pattern of of more grains, rice and barley and things and and lots of vegetables, maybe not so much fruit. Others might want a more tropical pattern, lots of fruits, not so much grains. Uh, Some people want to go raw. Some people want to go cooked. There's all kinds of ways of, of, of doing this and figuring out which foods you like best, Mediterranean pattern, a North African pattern. There's so many ways of interpreting it. 
but does anybody need meat? You're not a cat. No, you don't need meat. There's plenty of protein in plant foods. Does anybody need the milk of a cow? No, you, you need the milk of your, hopefully, your breastfeeding mama, which when I was a kid growing up in Fargo, I mean, that was totally out of fashion. But that's the only milk you need is milk from your mother's breast when you're a baby. Beyond that, you don't need it. Do you need an egg? No. So, so no, a, no, a vegan diet is, is appropriate for everyone. When people argue against it, it's kind of addiction talking, I really think, or, or culture. Mm. You know, we, we grew up with certain things. Um, we've gotten habituated to them in one way or another. And in some cases, I'm going to use the word actually addicted. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm speaking especially of cheese because I know it sounds funny to say that people get hooked on it. But there are actually narcotic traces in the cheese itself, which is why I'm going to use the word addiction for that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, every, I think vegan diet's great for everybody. Your your research and and your talks about cheese, like I, I learned so much about that, about like the casomorphins and all of that. Um, I definitely agree with dairy. Do you like? Do you feel like genetic? Like we need to take into consideration our ancestral dieters or like, you know, genetics. Like I'm from West Africa. Like, you know, there's certain things that they did eat, a lot of tubers, okra, all these things. Do, do those things matter, do you feel, for diet? Maybe. But we are, wherever humans are from, they are much more alike than they are different. Hmm. And the differences are rather trivial hmm. when it comes to, to nutrition. So, no, I don't think there's anybody who needs meat in their diet at all. And frankly, I, I, I think it's a little bit... This might, this might sound kind of insensitive, but sometimes people say that we really have to take people's cultures uh, into consideration before making any recommendation to them. Mm-hmm. I say, wait a minute, you know, let me decide. Um, <laughs> I'm from Fargo, North Dakota. And if you said, well, I want to take your Fargo background into consideration, I'm not going to tell you about hummus. Because right. that's, that's from, that, that's from um, the Middle East. Right. I'm not going to tell you about spaghetti because that's from Italy. I'm not going to tell you about teff because that's from Ethiopia. Ethiopia. You know, I'm not going to tell. Wait a minute. Tell me what's good and let me choose Hmm. all those kinds of things. And when we do research studies, we have quite diverse populations here. And I have come to see that everybody gets better Hmm. on a plant-based diet. Some a little bit better, some a lot better. And it depends in part on on what they choose and so forth. But let's let's explore and let's give ourselves a chance to, to see how we do with those things. Love it. In tandem with that, since you were just talking about everyone gets better, I have, I've come across really interesting cases. So like I have a client literally right now, I have a client right now who is vegetarian, but has diabetes. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you then explain sometimes when it happens when someone's on plant-based, but they're still like, you know what I mean? They're not optimal. Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, we're not immortal and, and diet changes are not perfect. They, they don't guarantee health. You, you can follow a pretty perfect diet and still get mm-hmm. weight problems, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, malignancy. It's sort of like you can drive your car really carefully, <laughs> but after about 200,000 miles, something may go wrong. Right. This, this could happen. Um, and so we go sometimes several steps further. With diabetes, the new discovery that came about in the course of, of our work and, and the work of other people, particularly some great researchers at Yale, is they found that the reason people develop type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. it starts with insulin resistance, where the cells of the body don't answer to insulin signaling anymore. Why? Because those cells are filled with fat particles. And when we realized that was the case, then that showed that a vegan diet ought to be good because it has no animal fat in it. Great. If you get, avoid animal fat, then the fat buildup in the muscles and liver cells, it starts to dissipate and insulin will work again. 
But what if I'm vegan, but I take a jar of peanut butter and a spoon and make that lunch or huge amounts of guacamole? I was Um, actually just going to ask you about healthy fat. So it's really like, it's not necessarily healthy fat can also be bad in excess. That's exactly that's exactly what I was trying to say in my own awkward way. Is is you going vegan is good, but for some people they need to really limit those fatty mm. treats. Or you might it's not real common, but some people are sensitive to wheat. Maybe one in ten people feels a lot better when they avoid it. Or you might have an allergy or something. So you might need to make additional steps. Hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. What how do you feel about keto? How do you feel about the ketogenic diet? I know that some people see it as like a therapeutic thing, um, at least for me and the research that I've seen as far as seizures, Alzheimer's, these, these, these are things that are interesting to me. As far as a fad, I don't know that I'm so into it, but I'd love to know what you, how you feel. Yeah. Every, here in Washington, we have cicadas, these insects that are in the trees. Mm-hmm. And you'll be walking down the street and you just hear this buzzing, 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 buzzing. It goes day after day after day. And then it all stops. Because the cicadas are now underground and they stay underground for about 17 years before they come up again. It's an amazing thing. While they're in the ground, they write books about low carbohydrate diets. <laughs> and they, they started with the Atkins, I'm teasing, of course. Uh, they started with the Atkins diet and then about 17 years later, South Beach diet. And then it's the ketogenic diet. And so what I'm saying is that for some reason, this low carb monster gets buried for a while and then it comes back and then it gets forgotten and then it comes back. It's based on overall a, fa- a false premise, mm. which is that carbohydrates are bad for you. Your body runs on glucose and glucose comes from grains or starchy vegetables or fruit or beans or these kinds of things. And so your body can use that glucose in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you avoid carbohydrate, you will lose weight because carbohydrate is about 50, 60% of what you're eating. And if you avoid 60% of what you're eating, no matter what 60%, you're going to lose weight. And you mentioned kids with seizures. That's the one case where I've actually seen, I think you can make a pretty good case for it mm-hmm. with those kids, but your your heart is in your mouth because those kids are gonna, may end up at high cardiovascular risk later on. You're just doing it because you've got nothing else to give those kids. But for other people, we are concerned about long-term risks, particularly colorectal cancer, Alzheimer's, other things like that. Yeah, that's the part about it that I think gives me pause. Just, just only, I just want to know the long-term ramifications of being on a keto diet. And I don't think there's enough studies for that. Well, that's one That's one really important issue is the long-term risks. I would look at Alzheimer's, I would look at colorectal cancer and other forms. But the short-term risks get brushed aside in people's wild enthusiasm for the idea, I can eat steak and still lose weight. You know, let's take off our party hat for a second. First of all, everybody knows that if you eat meat, your cholesterol is likely to rise. Now, anytime you're losing weight, cholesterol generally falls about one point off your cholesterol for every pound you lose, except on keto. When people do that, for some, they're going to lose, they're, they'll, they'll lose weight and their cholesterol will fall. But about one in three keto dieters has this opposite effect mm. where because of all the meat and gravy and butter they're eating, their cholesterols go up and sometimes they go up dramatically. But in research reports, they typically leave that out and they just take an average They say, on average, your cholesterol won't change too much. Mm. What they're disguising is the fact that for some, they're dropping like they should when you're losing weight. And for others, they're going through the roof. And those are people you are really nervous about a person who started it because they're overweight or diabetic and they're at risk for cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. And what are you doing? You're pushing their cholesterol up. So no, we don't use the ketogenic diets at all. 
And I think it's a, a fad and I'm looking for the cicadas to go back underground. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Do you, based on your experience, your knowledge and your research, do you believe that the way the human body, I think you kind of answered this already, but like, do you believe that the way the human body processes nutrients, like specifically the carbs, the proteins, or yeah, any of the basic macros, like, do you believe it can really vary from individual to individual, sort of like the metabolic typing idea? Do you think that holds any water? Um, Not very much water. Different people are different, and over time, you, your, your body will change. Um, when you're 16, it may well be that you can't eat anything and you aren't going to gain weight. And then once you're about 56, everything's different. But that's just your metabolism changing over time. And, and we, we study that in individuals, and you do see it. But it, it's we, we, what we find, find is that virtually everybody, when we put them on a plant-based diet, it's high in carbohydrate, very low in fat. Virtually everybody loses weight. It, it, it differs. The classic case is a male whose fat is more in their abdomen, not in the thighs. Adrenal that, that That body type is going to tend to lose weight pretty fast, mm-hmm. whereas his wife might have the, the thigh fat, not so much the belly fat. She's going to lose weight more slowly and be really annoyed with him. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you do see these, 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 some, these differences, but it, it doesn't change the prescription. Okay, gotcha. I've been obsessed with longevity for a really long time, um, actually since my early 20s. And I noticed that you just seem to be like the glowing picture of health as a, as a doctor Uh-oh. and as a, or maybe there's things I don't know, <laughs> but it just, it, there's not that many doctors who actually practice what they preach. And I think this is one of the reasons why I respect and admire you as well as all the work that you've contributed. But do you have specific, if you feel comfortable sharing, do you have specific longevity things that you do or who you have done for a really long time besides just obviously a diet and Oh, well, well, thank you for, for, for saying that. Um, I guess I'm trying to make up for lost time. I mean, I grew up, as I said, in North Dakota, and I had a terrible diet. I mean, every day of my life, roast beef, baked potatoes, and corn, except for special occasions when it was roast beef, baked potatoes, and peas. And, you know, if it, if that's what it was. I mean, I never, I literally never met a vegetarian wow. growing up, except once three people from India came and visited our town. Uh, once when I was in later high school, that was it. I never heard of any of this. And when I got to medical school, I would sneak hamburgers into the <laughs> into the library so I didn't have to take a break to eat. I would, I mean, terrible food. Mm. I took up smoking. I didn't quit smoking until I was finished with residency practically. Wow. So anyway, that was like the first half of my life. You know? <laughs> so now I'm in the second half of my life and I'm trying to uh, make up for all that. But no, I mean, what do I do? I mean, I follow a vegan diet. I keep fats low. I try to stay away from junk and I try to be as physically active as I can. For me, I'm not a marathoner. I'm like, all, it seems like everybody who works for me is. It's amazing that people here at the Physicians Committee are so athletic. But for me, I try to run about three miles, three times a week. And, and that, that does it for me. I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully that will help. Are you big on supplementation? I think there's some supplements that people need, but mostly I get nutrients from food. Um, the supplements I think people need are B12. So, so for, for anybody who's new to all this, the, the rules that I say that, that, I, that I would lay out are four food groups, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans. And the bean group is going to throw in lentils and peas. They're my honorary beans. So vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans. And then you should supplement with vitamin B12 because it's not made by animals or plants. It's made by bacteria. And we're not living with those bacteria the way we may have at one point. In any case, a supplement is a good idea. Um, 
vitamin D, I think we should supplement too if we are not getting sun. Now, human beings originated, I'm going to say probably in Eastern Africa, and some had the bad judgment to move to New Jersey um, <laughs> or to North Dakota, where there's just not so much sun. And so if you're not living in nature, then you got, then you're not going to get the sunlight that you need and you got to supplement. Yeah, I always, I can feel a really strong difference when I'm in Africa because I've lived in Africa for various spells and I can feel my skin like improving. <laughs> yeah. That's where we're from. Yeah. You know? and, and, and so I guess my point is that it, there was no need to supplement vitamin D when you lived in equatorial Africa. Mm. But if you live in, you name it, Sweden, mm-hmm. you know, there's just not much sun, sun there. So there are many other supplements that, that people can take. But for the most part, I think food really is where your nutrients should come from. And that's important because let's say I supplement beta carotene. Mm-hmm. Okay. If I get it from a carrot, there's beta carotene there. If I get it in a pill, there's beta carotene there. But the problem is this. The carrot has many different cousins of beta carotene. -carotene. All these carotenoids are biologically active. Mm -hmm. And if I take a pill of beta carotene, it suppresses my absorption of the other carotenoids. Vitamin E exists in eight different forms in nuts and in seeds and so forth. If I take it in a pill, I might get one form or two forms and that suppresses my absorption of the others. Why does it do that? I don't know exactly why, but somehow when you when you get an... Let, let's say I take a beta-carotene pill. Mm-hmm. I'm getting this huge overdose of this carotenoid, this single carotenoid. Your body says, wait, stop it. Don't give me so much beta-carotene. And it stops absorbing carotenoids. And so you never got all the other ones that you need. Mm. See what I mean? Yeah. With, with vitamin E, there are eight different ones. If you take just one and you're taking a lot of it as a pill, your body says, stop, too much vitamin E, but you never did get the other ones that nature expected you to have. Mm. Now, when I use that language, what I mean is we have lived with nuts and seeds for the millennia. Mm-hmm. And to live in harmony with the foods that are around us, that, 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 that's what our bodies are designed to do, if I can use that kind of language. And if you're suddenly taking a pill that has no be- no bearing with the balance of mm-hmm. the nature had in mind for you, that's a problem. B12 is an exception because B12 is just B12, um, and you absorb it really easily from a from a supplement. And, and vitamin D, same story. Got you. Don't you feel we should be, should we be concerned about the food supply though? Like just the general sort of degrading of the quality of our food and the nutrients available. For sure. Exactly. Mm. For m- many reasons. Part of it is that that people have bred crops, plants to be shelf-stable. And that may not be the same as making them really nutritious. Moreover, let me blame my own extended family for... (laughs) um, When I go go back to Fargo, it's amazing. You should get out of the airport, rent your car, and drive about five miles out of town. It's acre after acre of the most beautiful corn plants you could ever see. Genetically identical. Oh, wow. Um, And on the other side of the street, soy, as far as the eye can see, genetically identical. No human being is going to eat any of that. Cows are going to eat that Mm. or chickens or pigs. Mm. And all of the pesticides and all of the fertilizer that went to raise those corn and soy crops are in the service of making meat. And then it rains. And the the fertilizer and the pesticides trickle into the water supply. Mm. And it goes all the way down. It ends up in the Mississippi down in, in Louisiana and in Texas and around there. Mm-hmm. And if you, if, you, if you go look off, offshore, 
there's a dead zone as big as New Jersey wow. in the middle of the Gulf of, of Mexico because of all the fertilizer that caused algae bloom to grow and then die off and there's nothing. Wow. Nothing there. So are we degrading our food? Absolutely. And the fact that you've got to have a genetically modified tomato mm -hmm. just to put something on my pasta? Are you kidding? Some people debate whether these foods are dangerous or not dangerous. From my view is I don't want to be part of the experiment. Just let's have foods in as natural a way as we can. That makes sense. What would you say your vision would be for the best form of healthcare? For like the way the medical system is currently set up, what would be your vision for it? This is this is the ideal way things should be running. Do you mean healthcare like single payer and those those mm -hmm. kinds of things? Well, we we have a clinic here. Mm -hmm. And I think we do a couple of things that are really important. It's called the Barnard Medical Center. We set it up three years ago. And I set it up because before that, we, we had a lot of patients come in here, but they came in only as part of research studies. So you have diabetes and I can only take 90 of you and we're going to randomly assign you to this diet, that diet. I wanted some, a place where anybody could come right. and get treatment and that would take every insurance Medicare, Medicaid, everything, or people who don't have insurance. Right. And so that's what we've done. But the most important thing is that nutrition is integral to it. E even a person who comes in with a twisted ankle will wrap up their ankle, but will say, your twisted ankle isn't going to kill you. But your lunch might. Would you, <laughs> before you go, would you like to make an appointment, talk to our, our nutritionist right. to, to, to rethink what you're eating? Right. And where that's really important is the person who comes in with diabetes or obesity or cardiovascular disease or malignancies that clearly are caused by food and yet are where food is neglected. But if you wanted to ask me the bigger political questions, I'm not an economist. I'm a doctor. But I will say this. I would like for clinicians and patients to not have to wrestle with this insurance mess that we have now, mm -hmm. where just for, for our clinicians, I hired two, two new doctors recently. They're great, mm -hmm. but they could not see patients until they had credentialed with one after another, after another, after another insurance company. Wow. And somebody's making a whole lot of money in there that's coming out of either your taxes or your premiums. And that's wrong. My own belief is that there's too much money in this system, too much concern about it. I would love to see one payer come in and manage this system in a sensible way, mm. reimburse nutrition in a, in a good way. I would like to see drug prices really controlled in, in the way that they are in other countries. Mm. I would like to see doctors paid in the way they are in other countries, which is to say probably about a third of what some of them are making here, depending on, I, and I don't mean to rag all specialties in the same way, but I was talking not too long ago with a cardiologist who's making more than half a million dollars a year. Wow. And he said, I can't afford to work for you. I'm making too much money here. I thought, what you mean is you have sold your life. Mm. You're saying, I really want to work for you. I want to do this kind of great work, but he's making so much money. You know, he, and, and I guess everybody does this in their own way. Yeah. They kind of sell their life for something that, that isn't making the world that much of a better place. So anyway, don't get me started. There's a lot of things that could, that could be better in, in, the, in the world of medicine. But, but there are certainly some good things. Um, the end of this week, we have the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, and it makes your heart sing to see a thousand doctors in a room wow. saying, we are going to put nutrition to work. And when you see the patients that they are working with, who suddenly have power. And instead of you being the passive patient who's the recipient of medical care given to you, right. you're a partner. Right. You're a collaborator. You have information that you can put to work for yourself. So hopefully you don't need so darn much medical care. That's awesome. All right. Last two questions. If you could pick and rank from most important to least, 
only three things for people to focus on to achieve optimal health, what would they be and why? Only three? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, but with regard to food, I actually, I don't know if this is one or two or three, but I do encourage people to get the animal products and fatty stuff off their plate. So maybe that's one. Okay. And if a person really does that and is following for healthy kinds of uh, dietary practices, I think number two is to lace up your sneakers and get moving and hopefully bring somebody with you mm-hmm. um, so that you're not alone. That will remind you to do it, but you're also helping them too. You know, don't, don't forget, we can have a great influence mm-hmm. on other people around us and they in turn will reinforce us. Third, this is not exactly lifestyle, but people talk about having a, a purpose in, in what they do. And I don't mean this in any spiritual way. I just mean there's stuff wrong in this world. Let's fix it. In the process of fixing it, it gives you a reason to protect your health mm. and a reason to protect your family's health. We're not here just for entertainment. We're here to stop the suffering that's unfortunately kind of endemic in being alive. Once you have that purpose, it makes you really want to take good care of your neighbor so you can work together for, for this better kind of world. So eat better, lace up your sneakers, have a reason to get up in the morning, and those things will help. That's awesome. What, what do you want to leave as your legacy? I mean, you've done so much. What, what drives you and what do you want to leave as your legacy? Well, I hope I don't have a legacy for a really long time. <laughs> First of all, I don't feel uh, old. Yeah, I don't know. Although, you know, the, the mirror does tell you a few things as, as time goes on. You know, we're not as young. We're not as young as we used to be. But, but seriously, you know, life is short. It's your life is basically a pop up. You can look at your family tree and look at your great grandparents and great great grandparents and great great parents. They, they they were a flash, and they're gone. And that's true for us too. So what I am trying to do is to experiment as much as I can with new ways to, to get messages out, whether that message is for health or for compassion mm. and to have it be propagating and to have it become kind of an SOP that people can work, put to work in their own lives. And so that's why I write books and do shows and do research studies so that we can kind of nail things down and, and get the word out. I also am hoping that we can be sort of put out of business mm. in the same way as we don't need so many anti-smoking commercials anymore because people got that message. I am hoping that one day we won't have to say, wait a minute, don't put a dead animal on your plate anymore. <laughs> Maybe we don't have to make that argument so strongly because people will have embraced it mm. for whatever reason. I, I think that will, that would be a good legacy. Thank you so much. Where can people find you online? Oh, well, thanks. Well, our, our um, main website is PCRM. Org, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, PCRM.org, and I hope they come visit us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for getting this word out. And by the way, let me just say, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. a doctor on a busy day might see 18, 20 patients, something like that, and they might affect them. They might change their lives. But you are in communications. You reach people. You will never know how many people you will intrigue, but you mm. reach a whole lot more people in one day than a doctor does. Mm. And some of them, you will motivate, you will intrigue them. And they will say, you know what I just heard on this podcast? And they're going to share your words with other people. So I want to thank you for what you're doing oh. because that, that is what saves people's lives. Thank you so much. Yeah. That means a lot. Yeah, it's true. 
Okay, it's time to take some questions from Instagram or email. Remember, if you'd like to have your question answered on the show, all you have to do is send me a DM. You could slide up in my DMs. <laughs> or you could respond to the call for questions on my profile at The Raw Girl on Instagram. Or contact me via my website, therawgirl.com. The question we have today is from at Tony Mimi one She says, Dear Raw Girl, what are some healthy ways to include iron in my diet? Great question. First off, it's a wonderful idea to include iron-rich foods in your diet, but you're going to have to do a little bit more if you are iron deficient. So the first thing I want you to do is to make sure that your doctor or your health practitioner really checks on your iron status. So they're going to need to check your serum iron, iron, your ferritin, total iron binding capacity. You're also going to need a complete blood count or CBC to get a real full picture of what's going on with your iron levels. If for some reason you find out you're anemic, then you want to increase the amount of iron-rich foods in your diet, and you're also going to want to take an iron supplement, preferably one that is gentle and non-constipating. A lot of people have trouble with iron supplements and constipation. There's various forms of iron. A form that worked really well for me and also my clients is ferrous gluconate. You can check on the back and see what kind you have. Um, It's a form I like. And I also really like liquid iron supplements, and there are some great ones out there. Some of them even have herbs included, and they can be very gentle and absorb really well. Some iron-rich foods include things like tofu, lentils, lima beans, kidney beans, chickpeas, blackstrap molasses, which is amazing for women who are on their cycle, has a ton of B vitamins, can help release cramping during that time of the month, quinoa, Dark leafy greens such as kale, spinach, Swiss chard, collard greens. And then we also got the nuts, pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds. All of these are great plant-based sources. If you're a meat eater, you're going to get some iron from the meat that you're eating. But I would also include some of these plant-based sources. The other thing that a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to iron is you need to get your vitamin C up. And the reason why is because vitamin C actually enhances the absorption of non-heme iron, which is the plant-based sources of iron we just talked about. So what you're going to want to do is get whole food sources of of vitamin C. You don't want to be out here getting that boxed orange juice, okay? Um, You want to get oranges, grapefruits, papayas, supplements like Camu Camu, tons of vitamin Z. Um, acerola cherries from Brazil, tons of vitamin C. You can get that in powder form as well. I don't recommend supplementing using ascorbic acid or a synthetic form. I think it's best to get it from whole food sources and or just a, a supplement powder that's made from a whole food source. So do that, and you're also going to enhance the absorption of the iron that you are including in your diet. All right, y'all. That is all she wrote for today's show. (laughs) I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. And I really hope that we gave you some interesting takeaways to consider. Remember, it is very important for you to listen to your body and adopt a diet that gives you what you uniquely need. Debating whether or not you need to be on a 100% plant-based diet is less relevant than accepting the fact that in order to be healthier, more energetic, and live longer— you're going to need to eat, eat your veggies, you know? Sorry, you're going to have to eat them. <laughs> In the words of Joan Welsh, a man's health can be judged by which he takes two at a time, pills or stairs. 
I hope y'all take the stare sometime this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and tag me at the Raw Girl on Instagram. And don't forget to head over to iTunes and hit that subscribe button. We have some amazing new episodes coming up soon, so stay tuned. Until next time, sis, I hope you stay on track to living that ageless life. For more about the show, head on over to our website, stayingagelessshow.com. 